Coming up on Tech Nation, Matt Simon, a science journalist at Wired Magazine, we talk about his book, Plight of the Living Dead. He connects the animal kingdom from insects to whales. Who's a parasite? Who's a host to a parasite? And who might be controlled by one? Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft relates the story of a man and his smartwatch. The smartwatch can't be that smart. It's several years old. Nevertheless, it saved his life. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. You gotta feel a little sorry for the Pope. I mean, for centuries, Popes have been special, revered, blessed, and until recently, pretty much sequestered in Rome. Who knows if one snuck out for pasta in Chianti, as the paparazzi didn't exist until there were cameras and newspapers. And now, of course, digital photography, and the Internet. The Pope was far away, untouched and untouchable. Periodically, he would come out to his balcony, above the crowd gathered in St. Peter's Square. But it was not until recently that Popes actually traveled to other countries, said Mass with tens of thousands in large athletic stadiums, and traveled over the Golden Gate Bridge and through the city in his Popemobile. Now that was exciting. And boy, he must have been in a hurry. The Pope-mobile was going at quite a clip down Geary Boulevard. Still, we saw the Pope all right. That is, if you didn't blink. Of course, that was then, and this is now. And the digital age has come to the Vatican. Popes are photographed by thousands, and the Church's significant written instructions to Catholics everywhere are translated into multiple languages and published on the Internet. But Pope Francis is not entirely happy with all this. You see, as Pope Francis is saying Mass, he looks out at the assemblage, and what does he see? He sees smartphones held up by disembodied arms, holding them up above the crowd, jockeying for an unimpaired view. A whole sea of them. And why does this bother him? Because he's performing a sacred rite. It's not a performance, it's a religious ceremony. He's saying Mass for and with the people assembled. It's intended that they worship together. But boy, it's hard when you finally got close enough to someone who you never thought you would see in your whole life. My mother didn't have a smartphone when Pope John Paul II came to San Francisco, but she did manage to touch his robe as his assemblage walked past her on their way up to the impromptu altar in Candlestick Park. I guess she couldn't help herself. Besides, no one in the 70,000 people in attendance seemed to notice their attention apparently fixed on the giant jumbotron. (music) 
to tell you the truth, I think only a few will put their phones away. But there's a real lesson here. I used to take a lot of pictures on trips, but I found myself spending all my energy taking pictures and not taking in the experience. What do I feel? What do I notice? What does this remind me of? What have I suddenly remembered? What does this tell me about my life? The sheer ability of your mind to take you to other places on so many levels is enormous. But not if you're intensely engaged in taking pictures of everything. Even if you set deliberate boundaries, others know that you take good pictures and say, take that, or did you get that? or any number of other related activities. You don't want to be the photographer of your life. You want to be the liver of your life. Still, I can't get that image of the Jumbotron out of my mind. How soon thereafter, the 49ers took to the field. But images, both still and moving, are fleeting. And while it's great to return to them, authentic experience stays with you in a much more nuanced way. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Wired Science journalist Matt Simon, connecting the animal kingdom from insects to whales. Who's a parasite? who's a host to a parasite, and who might be controlled by one. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about a remarkable experience from the owner of a smartwatch. It might be a telling glimpse into our futures. When I started reading Matt Simon's book, Plight of the Living Dead, I made a quick list of terms. Zombies, mind controllers, parasites, and I thought, Let's start with parasites. Listeners know them. Listeners even believe they exist. They do, yeah, all over the place. And in fact, uh, some estimates say that more than half of life on this planet is in fact parasitic because it turns out to be a very great way to go about life. If you are um, kind of sucking the energy out of a host, that might be a little bit easier as far as survival is concerned. But uh, as we get into in the book, when you're ending up living in another animal, if you're a worm or, or something like that, there comes with all these really interesting challenges. Uh, first of all, not dissolving because of the host's immune system. That's a big one. But being able to do these really intricate maneuvers where you might you know, zap such amount of, of energy to let your host actually keep living because you want it to keep subsisting. But to reach that very fine line of getting enough energy out of it to power your own body, but not shut down the body of the host that you are inhabiting. 
So the one definition of parasite might be a single feeder. I feed on you and you got to scratch around and figure out all the things that you need to live and you know the brutalities of of finding things to eat however that may come to you. So that would be the definition of a parasite. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, I think it's there's a lot of different more technical definitions, but I think really just breaking it down, a parasite is a, is a creature that feeds off of the energy of you know, the animal, whether that's on the outside, like in the sea, you would see parasitic barnacles and things like that on whales, or within the whale itself, you might have worms. And in fact, whales, they get much bigger than the worms that inhabit our bodies, of, of course. But yes, generally speaking, it is something that is sapping the energy out of another creature. Boy, let's just go right there. A worm inside a whale? How big could a worm inside a whale grow to? That's a great question. So I was actually, a couple months ago, a whale had washed up ashore up, up north of San Francisco here. Um, and you I were would, Johnny on the spot. I was, oh, they, they were like, did you want to come see the whale? And before they had finished their email, I was in the car up to go see the whale. Which, by the way, puts out a smell that is indescribable. It's a very strange feeling because it's like a... It's pungent, of course, but it's also really sour. It's it's a very w- weird way. And, you, and so the scientist who was, who was showing me around the whale took me up and down the whale, and that's where the scent changes. So the closer you get to, say, the intestines, um, you get, of course, the intestine smell of the waste. But also just pure blood smells more like iron. It's like the symphony of smells as you walk around the thing. It is. It will actually stick to you. if you Like I got in my car when we were done. I hadn't touched Anything, no rotting whale or anything, and I can still smell it on myself in the car ride home, which was less than pleasant. But so when we were looking at this whale, they were doing the autopsy, and and one of the scientists actually pulled out a lot of these worms. They were big, sizable, robust worms. Now that, we're sitting here on the radio, and it, was that two, I'm, three I'm, feet apart? I'm doing a two feet with my hands. That old fishing thing. And uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> This well, big, I swear. Really big. This big. And how big around are they? Up, I'd say like so. So Which, an inch how do you and visualize a half. That? I'd say an yeah, inch yeah. and a half diameter. Yeah, but, so, but pretty darn long big, worm. Yeah. Big worm. So what they have to do, so you, of course, when you're doing this autopsy, this interests a bunch of other animals in the area, including seagulls. Um, so what they have to do with the worms in particular, because they want to study uh, and identify what species they are. There are very few organisms on this planet, including us, that do not play host to parasites of some kind. And, and as we get into the in the book, um, a lot of them adopt these really bizarre strategies of actually being able to modify the behavior of the host that they've taken up residence in. Now, you said there were scientists there. Of course there were scientists there. We'll show up to anything. Absolutely. Yeah, Academy <laughs> of Science Scientists, actually. California Academy yeah. of Scientists. Um, as well as the Marine Mammal Center up north in Marin. Um, they do a fantastic job. They get they get a call from a citizen who says, I found this whale washed ashore. And they do autopsies on all these because they want to figure out what is causing the deaths of these whales. And, and unfortunately, oftentimes it is ship strikes. So you'll have these giant vessels coming in and out of San Francisco Bay and the whales just aren't fast enough to get out of the way and, and you get a ship strike. So what, what was interesting about this one was it was a bit of a murder mystery because when they first opened it up, you saw this really striking band of purple flesh, um, which looked like a very severe bruising and internal bleeding. And that's actually an interesting clue because you don't do that when you're dead. You don't bleed internally like that. So from that, they were able to say, well, this thing must have been alive when it was hit by the ship. And as they got deeper into it, they were pulling out fragments of bone, lots and lots of fragments of bone, of of ribs and things like that, and determined that 
just by this autopsy that the ship had struck it kind of in the back and, and neck and probably killed it, luckily, instantly, in this case. I mean, we don't want these whales to die at all, but if it's going to happen, it may as well be quick. It, it, it's a severe problem out there in the San Francisco Bay. So what they're doing with this data is is they're using it to perhaps influence the way we make the ships come in and out of the bay. If we can change the, the directions certain times of the year, maybe, to better accommodate the whales that are Passing by, they literally yeah. pass by oh, yeah. on their on their way to uh, Mexico for the winter or wherever they're going. Yeah, yeah. yeah how, they, how long was this whale? Huh? Oh, this was a big one. This was like, uh, if I remember correctly, seventy feet. Seventy feet. Yeah, it was a thin whale. It was it was really big, which is, I mean, the biggest and whale. How that, high? It was on its back. It was hard. It was definitely taller than me. And at one point, one of the scientists had to climb up on top of it. Uh, they're wearing waders, by the way, which they have to destroy. Like uh, like, uh, like a, a, like a fisherman's waders. Waders, yeah. yeah. Um, and sh- she had actually climbed up on top and, and was opening up the stomach, the gut, um, kind of near the sternum. Um, but it's tall. Yeah, you, she's you got to get her boost up there, got to clamber down. But uh, it's a very big animal, and it is uh, so big that it doesn't really make sense to do anything other than just leave it there. So they do the autopsy get all the data they need out of it. Uh, you could theoretically drag it back out to sea and, and sink it. That costs money, though. It's, it's difficult. What Oregon learned, you might have seen this on the internet. There's a pretty famous video, uh, I think it was back in the 70s, where they had a beached well, and some genius had the idea, you know what we should do? Let's blow it up. So they no. packed it with dynamite. <laughs> you can find this online. It's a hilarious video because they blow it up into not vapor, which maybe they were expecting to happen um, for it to just kind of disperse, but into very large chunks, which then flew several hundred feet and landed on cars. There were people around oh. running around. It was uh, it was not the way to do it. But, I mean, the really two options are to either just leave it there for the scavengers to pick at or bury it. But either way, you're, you're giving it back to the earth and to the other critters of the ecosystem. I believe the name of that video is Unintended Consequences. <laughs> that's a good one. That the yeah. Prime example. That's a, prime that's example. A big one. That big, we have things to learn. Things to learn. So most of the critters you're talking about are smaller. Yeah. Yeah. Most parasites are little as we go down the size chain here. Why don't we just start out just with that? I like to start out with often with something really early in the book just to give people a flavor of what's going on here. Let's talk about those jewel wasps. Absolutely fascinating critter. So I, I was fortunate enough to go to a university in Israel where they are studying these. They have a basement room essentially full of uh, the most devious wasps on planet Earth. So these are these prion cockroaches. They're about half the size of cockroaches, though, which presents them with a problem because how do you parasitize something that is that much bigger than you and that will put up a fight? Um, so what Mama Jewel Wasp does is she which is a, like looks like a fly. If yeah, you will. it's it's actually pretty. It's it's kind of iridescent. Um, hence the name Jewel Wasp. Um, very very pretty creature. Got a bit of an attitude though. It turns out. So what happens <laughs> is the the mother wasp when uh, she wants to find a babysitter for her children, what she does is she finds a cockroach and then grabs onto it and stings it extremely precisely between the two front legs with a venom that shuts down those muscles. That is because she doesn't want it batting around its its legs for what's coming next, and which is the truly horrifying part. So she pulls her stinger out and then takes it and drives it through the neck up into the brain. 
Uh, and in the brain, she's feeling around for two very specific spots that govern locomotion. Um, and she's doing that because she has sensors on her stinger that allow her to you know, drill into and, and maneuver within the brain material. And when she gets to those two spots, she injects venom. And she pulls out her stinger and backs away. And the, wa- or the, the cockroach just stands there as if nothing had happened. And it starts grooming itself a little bit. But, uh, you know, doesn't seem to be that pulled off by what just happened. That is a needle driving through its brain. So the wasp goes off, finds a den, a little burrow, um, comes back to the cockroach. This is a pregnant wasp. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the egg bit is coming. And that's where it gets <laughs> even worse. So she, see, uh, she bites off its antennae. Um, and then drinks the blood that's coming out of those. Just a little bit of a snack for the energy that she's used to attack it. And yet it still just sits there. The, the cockroach does not seem to mind. And she bites onto the base of one of the stubs of the antenna and walks it into the, the burrow. The crazy thing is at any moment, the cockroach can just walk away. It can put up a fight. It doesn't need to be following this wasp. And in fact, it should not be <laughs> because what's coming next is really, really bad. So uh, the wasp takes the cockroach, shoves it into this burrow, and lays a single egg on its abdomen. And then the mother wasp will then get a bunch of pebbles, put a big old wall in the burrow so the wasp and the, the baby can't get out, which in fact is more so other creatures can't get in and take the meal that she has created for her child. So that egg hatches into a larva, which then begins drinking the juices through the, the skin of the cockroach. Which is still alive? Again, still alive, still very much in control of its faculties. And you actually, you can show that it, it, it is fully capable of, of doing something about this because if you take one that's been stung in the brain and you drop it in some water, it'll actually shake itself into a frenzy and then and then skitter off. So something is happening with the venom here that is actually shutting down the cockroach's ability not to move, but to want to move. So that's a problem for it because it's stuck in this burrow. And in fact, it can burst out whenever it wants. It's, again, more to keep other critters out. But the larva matures, runs out of juice, and then drills into the belly of the cockroach, consumes all of its organs, of course, um, but leaves the most pivotal ones for last, like the heart, because it's, it wants to keep these, this poor, poor cockroach alive. Um, and in fact, there's been some studies showed that the venom also uh, decreases the metabolism of the cockroach, which then keeps it from burning more energy and, and fat. And that means that's more fat for the little baby larva to eat. So it eventually hollows out the cockroach entirely and then pupates in there and then emerges as an adult wasp from this den. But what is going through the cockroach's head is anybody's guess. I don't imagine it's having a fun time. Um, But it's just one of those things that seems so extraordinarily complicated that it couldn't possibly be true. Like somebody must have designed this, like some sick jerk. Why why would you do this to cockroaches? They're terrible things that invade our homes. But really, is this the way to go about it? The cockroach doesn't deserve that. I mean, you know, and one at a time. Yeah. Just (laughs) nudge them outside if you don't want them in your house. Don't drill into their heads with venom. But it is, in fact, the process of evolution that over many, many millennia, this, this has developed from something that is was presumably much simpler into something that is just mind-blowingly complex. And it's all to further the pursuits of the mother wasp who wants to pass her genes to the next generation. And she's using the cockroach as a dupe in that sense. What One presumes that uh, her 
uh, ancestors tried to sting a lot of things yeah. <laughs> and came up with this. Right. And, and uh, But also, knowing that it's stinging in two places, it's depositing venom in two places, you know, the only way to know something like that is real science. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine how they figured that out. Yeah. These are really fantastic researchers here, and they just must they must go through existential crises all the time. <laughs> just, just looking at this really terrible thing in nature. Like, nature is it's horrible. Like, it's, we are really lucky to not be out there. We've mostly removed ourselves from the food chain. Nothing is, is chewing on us much anymore, um, if we're lucky. But it, there are really, really terrible things going on out there with, with parasites. But, you know, this is the way life goes. Uh, that's, these are our judgments, of course, as humans. But um, this is the way that evolution has designed things. Not, not purposefully, of course, but just by chance. This is the strategy that evolved in this jewel wasp. And unfortunately for the cockroach, that means being zombified and hollowed out in a den. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Matt Simon, a science journalist at Wired Magazine. You might know him from his earlier book, The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar. He's here today with Plight of the Living Dead, what real-life zombies reveal about our world and ourselves. Well, Matt, this is just fascinating on 52 counts, <laughs> I have to tell you. I think people are very comfortable with the idea of parasites in some place else, but the idea that something could get into us or even into our brains, how how uh, vulnerable would you say humans are to the the cruelest parasites that you're talking about here? Yeah, I think the, the most famous one, and I don't think many people think of this as a manipulative parasite, but rabies is perhaps the most devious manipulative parasite when it comes to human beings and, and of course, other mammals. Um, it, it's You can find videos online of people in the throes of, of, of rabies um, outbreak, and it's a really horrifying thing to watch. It's, it's, it's tough because you know that these people are suffering so terribly, and, and it, the virus will inevitably claim their life. So what's interesting here is that rabies didn't evolve which you usually get from a dog bite, yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. So, but because we share a mammalian brain with with the other critters that it did evolve to manipulate, and, and to be more specific, what it does is it it gets into the brain and the nervous system um, and induces kind of this rage. It's it's um, and that's to further the pursuits of the virus because what it has also done is uh, made the creature foam at the mouth. So, when the uh, the the poor host bites onto something, it, it transmits that that parasite. But it's also, uh, what it does is it manipulates you to be afraid of water. So there's another thing you can find videos of, of people. If, if you try to give somebody who's suffering from um, rabies and is very close to death, they'll actually do everything they can to get away from the water. And that seems to be a manipulation from the parasite as well that doesn't want you to drink water to wash out all that saliva where the parasite is sitting, and that's the way it gets onto its next host. And of course, the most famous manipulation is the aggression, which you you find both in in you know raccoons, dogs, but also humans. And it's it's I, I think we probably don't think of it as a manipulative parasite, just because we think that our brains are better than that, right? We're human beings. We are more highly evolved, quote unquote, which just is is not the case. We like to think of ourselves as special, but this is still tissue in our heads that is manipulative. You can do certain things as a parasite to really change the behavior of your host. And rabies is is perhaps the most 
terrifying example of that. Well, we've been talking about zombies and zombifiers, very popular today, you know, to have all these things. Where does that come in? Who's a zombie? Who's a zombifier? Yeah. So um, we'll just start at the beginning. The the whole zombie thing, um, it, it began as folklore um, way back when, but it, it didn't really take off in America until Hollywood got a hold of it. And it seems to have come from rabies. Uh, the, there's there's some early literature and pop culture where you started seeing these out of control humans that are just not in control of their faculties. They're they're mad and and uh, there's there's something wrong with their brains. And uh, they want to walk around and their ha- arms are yeah. out straight and they're stiff and they're just a little bit goofy. Yeah. And you know it, it it weirdly it's it's fiction, um, but it makes sense from a parasite's perspective. You want to to induce not only like this toughness that you have as a zombie, um, famously you could cut off an arm or whatever, a leg, it keeps going, keeps coming at you. But that that aggression, that's the parasite wanting to further itself and get to, to new hosts. So it does seem that the, um, the myth of, of the zombie was in fact inspired by rabies. And that's what you get this whole range of, of zombies. You have the slow stumblers, of course, but you also have the fast movers. Um, and that's where you can start to think about, well, it doesn't really make that much sense if you if you want to be technical and nerdy and maybe over the top of it, which, which I'm going to do right now, is that when you get sick, you have the flu, a parasite is, is doing bad things to your body. You typically don't have more energy. You have less energy. So why would these zombies be running around? doesn't matter. That's just my nitpickiness. <laughs> but these are interesting things that, as I had mentioned earlier, there's, there's really interesting considerations for a parasite within the body of a host to not only create these behaviors that further its genetic line, but to be able to survive in what is an environment that is very much willing to attack you, to destroy you as best as it possibly can. We see this a lot where one of the things all of these parasites do is they take on the the uh, immune system and somehow paralyze it or trick it so that it's not being attacked. Yeah, it's really it's, – it's a strange one and it's – a lot of times it seems to be the parasite, like worms. We I have a chapter in there about the nematomorphs, which are also known as horsehair worms. They have an interesting life cycle in that they crawl into crickets and then mind control them to jump into water, um, which is bad news for the cricket. You don't want to be doing that. But it's at that point that the the worm can tell because it's, it's cut a little hole in the cuticle of the abdomen and can actually taste when it has hit water. And then it scrambles out of the cockroach in really horrifying fashion and went to another lab that does this and this uh, scientist he's fantastic he you normally find one worm per cricket out in nature but in his lab he's done dozens sometimes like infected them with dozens and almost every time the cricket survives it's very strange even though if it can survive drowning um, it can survive a mass of worms wriggling out of its body it's another thing on the internet if you so wish to to look up you can find it it's it's pretty pretty terrifying but that the the trick there on that one it gets in to the cricket it forms a cyst of sorts and that seems to um confuse the immune system the immune system can't find it there's some sort of material that the worm is using to hide essentially in the cricket um and which crazy about this one is that if it ends up in a host the, the cricket is what it wants to eventually be, but if it ends up in some other kind of insect it'll insist itself in that insect and if it gets eaten by a cricket 
you can actually tell when it is in the right body. Oh boy, and I'm then, in a cricket. Yeah, oh, so this is exactly where I wanted to be. Um, and then, only then, will it come out of that cyst form and turn into a worm and begin feeding on the juices inside the cricket, at which point it then makes it jump into the water, um, kamikaze style. So there, there's, yeah, it's, it's a tough life. We like to think of parasites as freeloaders, but ooh, they are struggling mightily because that those bodies want to destroy them in any way they can. I've been speaking with Wired science journalist Matt Simon. The book is Plight of the Living Dead, What Real-Life Zombies Reveal About Our World and Ourselves. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about one person's remarkable experience thanks to his smartwatch. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Wired science journalist Matt Simon about Plight of the Living Dead, what real-life zombies reveal about our world and ourselves. One example of a, of a person, well, well-respected, neuroscientist Angret Faulkner at NYU. Let's talk about what she works on. Yeah, so this is cool. This isn't parasitism specifically, but um, I wanted to use it as uh, an example of just how vulnerable the brain is. So what she is doing uh, is she takes mice, and uh, we get into detail in the book about how she does it, but um, she can drill down through the top of their skull into the brain and into a specific spot in the brain um, where she injects a special virus that breaks into neurons. Um, and when she then sends a tube down, a fiber optic tube, to that bit of the brain and shines light, that light activates the neurons in, in this part of the brain that controls aggression. So you have these mice in this lab with little hats on, and when they send light through it, through a fiber optic cable, you, it's, it's in an instant. The, the, activates. The, yeah, the mouse that was normally just kind of laid back um, just turns into a high-progressive 
animal in it. And it's they, they what they test is they have the you know, typical alpha males that they do this to, and they they will put a less aggressive male in the, in the cage with them. And that alpha male with a nice little white hat will just do everything he can to destroy that other mouse. It's 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 fascinating because it turns on in an instant just by shining light on those neurons, activating them, and getting the mouse to go a little bit crazy. But I, I wanted to use it as an illustration of. This is a mammalian brain that is not as complex as ours, but it's still a mammalian brain. And it's that easy to really precisely control behavior. And it's not just typically, historically, you would dose them with drugs, but that's not as precise. It takes a while maybe to set in and it takes a long time to wear off. This is extreme precision of a very specific spot in the brain and and breaking into those neurons again and to be able to activate them with light. So that said, I just find that to be a really interesting case um, that really, I think, breaks down the myths of the human brain in a way that um, uh, we're, we're different. We have this wonderful consciousness. We have free will. Uh, I would argue that we don't, that it's it's just there's neurons up there. It's it's neurotransmitters firing around in our brains. We are meat. We're not this weird idea of a soul in our heads. Um, we are animals like mice, uh, no matter how much special we we think we are. One thing I thought interesting about that chapter was how do you get the mouse to, you know, press a bar? You yeah. know, usually think press a bar, you get a pellet, you know, that's not what she does. No, no, this is a bit more sinister. Um, when he presses a bar, he knows that he's going to get somebody to fight. He's the alpha male who is wired up to this light source in his brain, um, has learned to fight somebody when he gets this light shined in and he goes aggressive and as some sort of outlet. Um, so as you mentioned, typically in a lab, you are pressing a button to get some sort of treat. You're studying behavior and all that. This is on a different scale. And it, I, I find it so much more fascinating because it really shows how you can manipulate the brain and what is, in this case, a pretty simple way. But then when you go back to something like the jewel wasp, how on earth, over the millennia of evolution that this took to develop... How did that become so complex when we are just now learning what specific parts of the brain do, how to manipulate them with, with light and viruses and, and things like that? But I think it's a it's it's I'm I'm a maybe incorrigible materialist in that sense that um I like to think of this brain as as mush that is you can manipulate it. It's not as special as we think it it is. It's it's fun to have these nice big brains, but we are animals like the rest of them. It speaks to me at a level of it's almost like uh, an entry into how we look at the dark side yeah. of who we are. We, uh, you know, the whole idea of, you know, press the bar, get a treat. That's a very positive view of life that people are motivated by positive. You know, it's like, ooh, you know, we we humans are pretty complex. And so, however, this soup, which is our brain, assembles through our experience, through our physical environment and ecosystem, what we've been exposed to on many different levels, physical and intellectual and, and emotional, all these, you know, we've got hormones running through it. We've got all this. It's like you really begin to get a different kind of picture about who we are. And uh, we don't, science doesn't usually look at it that way. Yeah. And it's, you know, uh, as a, uh, not an extreme materialist. I, I, I would clarify that uh, just because I think that there's the, the, the processes that come from the brain are, are controlled by neurons and, and meat 
doesn't mean, as you mentioned, that this isn't um, malleable. It's not, you, you can go through PTSD that very much changes your brain. And that's actually, it's, uh, it's a tactic for not just us, but other animals. You want to be able to learn um, from your mistakes. You want to learn what's bad, what's good. So the brain, your behavior has to be malleable in a certain way. But at the end of the day, it all comes back down to those neurons and, and the chemicals and the neurotransmitters that are really controlling the show. And when it starts getting even scarier is when you start looking at experiments about free will that show um, that in, in the brain you can see activity of, of decision being made before the person actually knows that they're making that decision, which seems to suggest that we are not actually consciously making these decisions um, which is terrifying in its own yeah. right. <laughs> A lot of subconscious, unconscious things going on. Yep. <laughs> know thyself as best as you can. A lot of this fits into this survival of the fittest, you know. And and you write about, you know, the theory of evolution by natural selection. And, of course, we know Charles Darwin. I had, if I knew about Alfred Russell Wallace, I forgot. Let's put those two together. Yeah, a totally fascinating character who I think is beginning to get his due um, in in what he did for evolutionary sciences. So um, he was a brilliant young naturalist. He did more of the traipsing around, almost dying a lot, which Darwin did on his famous expedition to a, a degree, um, but not like like Alfred did. So he um, he was. Uh, uh, this is well topics. before antibiotics, I'd like to point Oh, yeah. Out. No. Wouldn't have, that have been nice. No. He he got all kinds of sicknesses. And in fact, he was bedridden which, with probably malaria when the idea of natural selection um, came into his head. So he, Darwin had actually been working on it for many years but hadn't published it because he was trying to amass as much evidence as possible given how earth-shaking this would be for for the sciences and, and just humanity's place in the world. To be, you know, this, like, this is all an accident in a sense. I mean, it's there's certain reasons why we evolved the way we do, but it's all driven by, in a sense, randomness. Um, but there was... So he was having this sort of fever dream, had this brilliant idea, scrawled it on some paper, and sent it off to Darwin, which was the last person in the world you would want to know about this theory we had already thought of this theory. Um, so when the letter got to Darwin, um, his friends suggested that they take both the men's ideas and present them jointly. Because back in these these days, you went up in front of a bunch of people. You didn't just in the 1800s. Publish, yeah, you just publish in a journal um, um, online. And but this was a much more personal thing where you you go and present your work in front of other people. Um, so it, weird, like you would think that. Uh, Wallace would be a little upset about this. Um, I guess they, he he published it jointly. I mean, he acknowledged him. Yeah, yeah. So that's a without funny talking to him. Yeah, uh, no, they didn't. So the the idea was that it's going to take many months to get a response back and forth, um, telling him that hey, we're going to do this. Hope this is okay. But in fact, uh, a, a while later, um, he was actually very honored uh, for this. He he wrote to one of Darwin's friends that that he was glad that they had done that. Um, but he, of course, Darwin took the the limelight in this. Um, but the, even though, I mean, obviously Darwin's ideas were better formed because he'd been working on this for years. But Wallace had the same idea, and it's it's a stunningly simple idea that the world sucks. That's <laughs> the very base of it. Is that life is garbage? It's so hard. Like we are so lucky to be in the position that we're in, and that's just not the case for so many species out there. So what both of these brilliant scientists discovered or figured out was that. A lot of critters out there are dying in terrible ways, such as our cockroach and the wasp that torments it. 
Um, but the ones that do make it tend to be better adapted to their environments. Um, and they get to pass down more of their genes, and that perpetuates uh, this adaptiveness to a certain environment. Um, and when it gets weird when we're, we're talking about the extreme complexity of the jewel wasp is you can't go back and, and find how this has actually evolved. But it was likely that the jewel wasp wanted to attack maybe a smaller insect and was able to sting it in the brain and kind of just knock it unconscious. But what it's doing with the cockroach, which is, again, twice its size, um, by controlling it better like this, it actually might be able to provide more food for its young. It's a much bigger prey item, um, which would, in theory, drive the evolution of this more complex behavior to be able to really lead it around on a leash. So it's there are reasons that things evolved in a given ecosystem, but there's that randomness of, of the mutations in our bodies that are, are naturally happening that might better suit you just very slightly to your environment. And by doing that, you maybe are able to mate more, pass down the genes that code for that sort of little bit behavior of or characteristics. The unlucky yeah. ones, didn't. those genes just didn't come down. And it's, yeah, when you think about, there's some fish that release something like 500,000 eggs in the water in a go. A female will drop half a million eggs. And in a stable uh, population, two will survive to replace their parents. That's two out of 500,000. Those odds are garbage. Uh, <laughs> we, of course, as humans, have a different tack. We don't have 500,000 young and, and hope that one or two survive. Uh, we take care of our, our young, of course. But uh, th- there's just so much suffering and terribleness. And it's something that Wallace and, and Darwin very much understood, but were a little bit afraid to, to push on the public because back in Victorian times, that was the way people wanted to look at things. As well as you have the religious aspects, yeah. you know, and for so many people, including scientists, they can still see the hand of God there if they believe God. It's not a disproof of that spirituality. But of course, you know, they have more and more science. When you have almost no science and then some new framework comes in, it's like that's a big leap to make. That basically was the major rocking of the world that they had to pay for, if you will. There was a backlash. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's huge. And it, I mean, probably the biggest part about it is, is what I harp on in the book is that under this framework, we humans aren't special. We came from ancestors. We evolved um, just like everything else. And it was by randomness. The other, the other narrative, the more religious narrative, is that we were placed on this earth because we're special. Um, we're above every other species, which, you know, technically we're kind of, now. We're kind of ratcheting we, that down now. Yeah, well, yeah. It turns out that wasn't <laughs> yeah. great for the planet. But um, yeah. we are our, – our brains have done something amazing in their evolution. That, that can't be – doubted but what the argument i'm making is is that these are it's still very much couched in in physical matter and that produces not this nebulous soul or anything it's just neurons firing neurotransmitters bouncing around the brain and that's that's probably a little tough to to come to terms with i think when you want to think that humans are special um we're not i have to say when you read these things you really it really adjusts your thinking in in total in total. Now, barnacles. I always thought of barnacles as just sitting there. And you talk about, you've, you've mentioned the barnacles, you know, on the ships, and actually grow on the ships. But barnacles and crabs, what's the deal there? 
Oh, yeah, that's a tough that's a tough one to to talk about too because it's it's pretty gross. Um, so yeah, barnacles, as you mentioned, uh, they grow on whales, they grow on ships. Um, they're actually a nuisance for ships because it slows them down. Um, this barnacle has adopted a rather more parasitic. What is lifestyle. a barnacle? You'll see them on the beach, of course, are the things with the conical sorts of shells, and below that is an actual critter that attaches itself to some sort of substrate, uh, which is how most barnacles go about life. Um, This barnacle goes about life way differently. So it starts out really tiny, as all barnacles do, as a little larva. Um, It wants to find a crab. So when it actually gets itself inside a crab, this is a a female, um, she'll start growing as a root system throughout the crab's flesh which sounds like the most painful thing you could possibly, like just working its her way through the entire, like through the claws, through the legs, just growing throughout its system. And it's uh, as she's doing that, she is sucking up energy. Again, the ways that parasites can do this without completely zapping their host of energy or, or weighing them down. But somehow the crab is just like, eh, doesn't seem so terrible in the sense that it's not producing a lot of weird behaviors. Um, so what happens is a male barnacle has to find one, not only a crab, but a crab that has a female already in it. Uh, and she kind of grows outside of its bum area as a bump. Um, and he has to find not only a female on a crab, but a virgin female. And when he gets there, he um, enters into the crab. They get together um, and they begin barnacle style, barnacle style, in a very creative way, I would say, to have sex, and they start producing offspring. So um, when the barnacles are ready for this to happen, the female actually orders the crab to, even if it's a male, it doesn't matter if it's a male or female crab, to start. You probably see on the beach like a crab. Well, it'll be in like this this low surf. It'll shake its bum to get all of its eggs out. Um, it does this kind of little dance, and that's just jettisoning the eggs to get out in the ecosystem. Um, this isn't a crab furthering its own genetic line whatsoever, but it is the uh, parasite co-opting that behavior to then have the crab shake its own offspring out of it, the parasite offspring that then go out into the ecosystem to find their own crabs. Um, but what's crazy there is, as I've mentioned, it doesn't matter if it's a male or female. Males don't do that shaking behavior because they don't have eggs. So where's that coming from? It, like You could see that it's co-opting the female crab's behavior for reproduction. That's easy enough. But why would the males be doing it? And, and in addition, So the male, if they, if they happen to take up residence in a male, the male does this yeah. dance. And not only that, it actually feminizes the crab in a way. Um, so it actually makes the bum area grow wider. Um, to more look like a female. And that might actually be to give the parasite more room to grow on the surface to get bigger um, and stronger. So lots of really intricate manipulations happening on this one, but really hard to think of a worse way to go as far as a barnacle parasite growing throughout your tissues and then ordering you around the sea. Well, to wrap up, you make the point, nature does not care about your feelings and well-being. No. That is for sure. That is. And we have it so lucky as human beings, considering all the other stuff that's happening out there. Hey, Matt, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you come back and see us again. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. My guest today is Wired journalist Matt Simon. The book is Plight of the Living Dead, What Real-Life Zombies Reveal About Our World and Ourselves. It's published by Penguin. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation.
Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Not everyone wants to walk around being constantly monitored by their digital devices, but then there are those who relish it. These folks would likely be among the 200 million people who've bought smartwatches in the last year and a half. That's right, 200 million. And you've got to know, these watches do more, much more than tell time. In fact, sometimes they do you a very big favor, which we see in the tweet our chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, is about to share. This is a tweet from February of 2018 by an individual. Uh, Put it on Twitter. Quote is, Never thought a stupid little wrist computer I bought two years ago would save my life. Saw my heart rate go up, ended up being a pulmonary embolism. And on the tweet, there's a picture of this patient. There's a picture of a screenshot from his uh, smartwatch that shows his heart rate being tagged at 189, whereas normal heart rate's in the 50s and 60s. And so this gentleman was smart enough to notice that wasn't normal, 189, and brought himself to the emergency room. And when they did the evaluation... They said, don't move. <laughs> he had a big, big clot in his lungs, and that it can be definitely life-threatening. And th- this shows us the power of now a consumer device, in this case, an early gen- you know, first-generation Apple Watch that can now detect heart rate, indicating something was going on. The next stage are for these to start informing us, you know, when we're not even aware of it, that something's happening with my heart rate. My Apple Watch, my Fitbit, many other consumer devices can track heart rate. What's interesting now, there are platforms. One I have embedded in my Apple Watch, a company called AliveCore. It is essentially an EKG that can live in my smartwatch or on my smartphone so that if my heart rate was running at 180, it will trigger me to say, hey, Daniel, go do an EKG. I can now, as I'm showing you in the studio, but no one can see, doing a real-time two-lead EKG on my watch, which you don't need a cardiologist to read. The AI, artificial intelligence algorithms, can determine, do I have a normal sinus rhythm or am I in atrial fibrillation? And that can be sent to the cloud and potentially to my healthcare team. Now, I have to tell you that uh, when you're saying it's on your Apple Watch, you've got the lap on your Apple Watch, but also you have the wristband which has a, a metal uh, piece in it, if you will. I don't know what else is in that, that you hold. So you, you have to have the wristband part, and you have to have the app. But together, you can really watch what's going on. Right, and this is actually FDA-approved. It's over-the-counter. You can buy it online without a doctor's prescription. And it's an example of this digitization of health diagnostics, which isn't just a fad now. This particular platform has been studied by academics, comparing it to full-on 12-lead EKGs. And while not 100% perfect, it now gives a a patient with atrial fibrillation and their cardiologist a a new lens to manage their heart condition, to tweak their medications, to bring them to the emergency room if they need it. And the fact that they're now doing a million plus EKGs a month, the leverage of powering the crowd and continuing to learn and improve the algorithms will create new data sets and ways of managing heart disease. Now, you've got a couple things going on here. One is just detecting that you've got some some action going on, and it's able to do that in your watch. And I guess it's also able to do that in your phone with a different app? Right. Sticking with the watch for a moment, it can often track my activity, my steps. If I'm running up downstairs and my heart rate's 160, great. But if I'm sitting down and not moving and my heart rate's high, that might be the example of this check engine light for the body. Hey, Daniel, something's going on. Let's, let's do your EKG or 
make sure that your heart rate isn't really 180 because there can be false positives. Um, we can bring these sorts of diagnostics now to our magical supercomputer smartphones. These little attachments, just like the one on my watch from uh, a live core, can live on the back of your phone and allow you also to do an EKG. And these can be used not just by cardiac patients, but for screening. I've taken these to, to conferences and meetings and have them passed around, and invariably one out of 100 or 200 will find that they have a abnormal heart rhythm they didn't even know they had. Or if you're a triage nurse in a clinic or an emergency room, someone comes with chest pain, you say, here, hold, hold, hold this, this. <laughs> hold, hold this phone, and we can take a quick look without putting on the 12 leads of the EKG to see if you have what we call ST elevation, which might indicate an acute heart attack. So these are starting simple, but are an example of our sort of digital diagnostics toolbox, which are going to become more and more common. Now, I want to ask you, uh, is there a difference between just it's kind of checking you and it sees something funny and the times when it says, hey, you should do a, an EKG. A little, is that a bigger app within the phone? That's the same app from this uh, company, AliveCore. But now this data will actually flow to my Apple iPhone. I can connect that data back to my medical record and physician at Stanford. Some hospitals now uh, are collaborating with Apple and the data can flow between my smartphone, and not just my watch, but my connected scale, how many steps I'm taking, if I have other applications or sensors, we can start to pull this data together and hopefully make that useful clinically. One of the challenges we've talked about on this on prior shows, we don't often know what this digital exhaust means. And we're starting to see trials, one called the baseline trial from Verily, Google Health, for 10,000 individuals to have their digital exhaust. I like to call it the digitome. It might be their sleep data, their heart rate data, their movement, their vital signs, their medical records understood from a 10,000 patient level. And just uh, in late spring of this year, 2018, the National Institutes of Health launched the All of Us trial. It's a million patient opt-in volunteer data donor trial. I've signed up. You can sign up at allofus.org to Volunteer your medical record, the data from your connected smartwatch, your step information, um, your genomics, if you have that. So we're going to learn how to connect the dots because what might be abnormal on my watch in EKG may not be that for Moira or some other, someone else with other issues, conditions, medications. So we're starting to see the ability to collect sort of this massive, almost a Framingham trial on steroids so that when we get information from our digital And exhaust, remind people what the Framingham trial is. The Framingham trial has been going on, I think, continuously for 60 years. The, the town of Framingham in western Massachusetts had a series of volunteers. Many of them were medical professionals, nurses, doctors, and followed them over their entire lives. Understood, for example, what does their cholesterol number mean and correlating to that risk of heart disease. That's driven a lot of the guidelines that drive a tremendous amount of medicine based on a pretty small cohort of mostly Caucasian, European uh, heritage individuals. But we need to understand risk factors and data from different races, different ethnic groups, different locations. And now with trials like all of us, we're going to see that democratized, meaning anyone can play a part, anyone can potentially volunteer to be a data donor, opting in to share certain data, not necessarily all of it. And when we have that lens and we apply data analytics, machine learning, epigenetics all together, we'll learn that it's not just your vital signs, it's not just your genome or your microbiome, but it may be what zip code you're in, your social network strength, subtle new signs and digital breadcrumbs and virtual and vital sign type breadcrumbs that we can use to be smarter about 
preventing disease, diagnosing it, and treating it. Now, I hope you don't accuse me of being a Luddite here. <laughs> well, a lot of people just want to live their lives, but they have they might have a concern about stroke, or they might have a concern about heart, as we're talking about here. And I guess my question is, uh, can you just have something that says, hey, you've got a problem, like this person turned out to say, you've got a, you've got a pulmonary embolism. It's like, whoa, that's pretty simple, but not to have all of this data, not to have all these things hooked up and steps and all that. Is there a way to just do it simply or it's everything you got to be all in or all out? I think it's not a zero sum game. We need smart design thinking, just like with our modern cars. We've talked about the idea of a check engine light for the body. There's 300 sensors in my car. I don't know. Or, I don't know about most of them. There's a, one in every single piston. He's not a robot. I'm not talking to a robot. I need you all to know that. But my dashboard will say, "Hey, Daniel, check engine light uh, is on," uh, and will hopefully mean I go to my mechanic and plug in the, the computer, and they can do the the deep diagnostics. So you don't need to be a cardiologist or a epidemiologist to understand uh, and synthesize all this information. We need to bring it to the early action mode i.e. that check engine light to bring you to the emergency room early or to uh, adjust your medications before they're out of whack, that I think is part of the big potential of the future of health and medicine. And I have to say there's going to be this, I just want enough, and then, hey, I just want to live my life. (laughs) And how we communicate that is different. I mean, we talked on other segments about the the age wave, baby boomers. We need to communicate to a 70-year-old differently what their interface looks like on their app, what language you use versus a millennial. You know, millennials are have grown up on Snapchat and Twitter and, and Facebook. While older folks are certainly on those, it means it, we can't communicate health information in the same way, depending on age, culture, language, education. And a part and a big challenge for health care is to translate these new technologies and signals for individuals wherever they might be and however they might want to interact with it. Well, Daniel, thanks for coming in. Thanks for more. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. The Exponential Medicine Conference 2018 is scheduled for early November at the Hotel Coronado in San Diego. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.